Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. Morning everyone. It's always um, so much easier to stand up here after you've had a great time of worship. We serve a great God, a mighty God, and I don't feel so alone anymore. (laughs) But here I am, by the grace of God. And um, Right, so my desire this morning is to really bring an appropriate New Year's message. You know, we all like to start off the New Year on a, on a good foot. And a message that will encourage you, strengthen you, and not only that, but hopefully challenge you as well as you go into, into 2023. Um, and will also give you a growing sense of joy in God if correctly applied. So you need to listen well because there's application to the sermon. The Lord has placed this message on my heart. It's something that's been close to my heart for 20 years plus. Uh, and I am indebted to some great men of faith who have been my teachers, men such as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, John MacArthur, J.I. Packer, John Piper and Alistair Biggs, and it is really their wisdom and insight that I pass on to you this morning. And the title of this message is The Blessed Man, Psalm 1. We all love the Psalms. You know, it's often our go-to book when we're a bit down, a bit discouraged. Open the Psalms. It's great. We learn so much. Um, The Psalms really capture the reality of our human experience in all its emotions, and we can identify with them. I think we can, we can identify with those psalms as we read them. They teach us a philosophy and a way of life based on the experience of the psalmist over the ages. Uh, as King Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun, and so it is with the psalms. They are set in real-life historical context, and the psalms are as applicable to us today as they were then. So Psalm 1, which we're going to look at now, is a beautiful psalm of poetic wisdom. It is often regarded as the gateway to the rest of the psalms, and in many ways the gateway to the rest of the Bible. And it presents two ways of living, and two only. And the first is the way of the righteous, and the second is the way of the wicked. Now, the key subject in this psalm is the centrality of God's word to the life and to the fruitfulness of the righteous. Now, we need to keep that in mind. This is the key subject, the centrality of God's word to the life and fruitfulness of the righteous. It's not a psalm on how to be good and righteous. As we read it, don't think, well, now this, you know, I've got to really work on on being good and righteous because Christ is the only truly righteous person. But it is on the enjoyment of blessings that we have already been given, lest we slip into a form of legalism. As believers, we have a heavenly position and an internal inheritance secured in the work of Christ. However, the experience of these blessings and the capacity for happiness is directly proportional to the knowledge of and application of God's word in our lives. 
And I think this will become clear as we go through this psalm. So let's read it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's important here to note up front that the Hebrew word for man, which is ish, portrays a representative example of a godly person. So ladies, you're not off the hook here. All right? Blessed is the man. In fact, I wouldn't say you're not off the hook, but you're incorporated in the blessing, men and women. It is important to note, too, that this is a man who is blessed beyond even understanding. It is, it is something quite incredible. What does it mean to be blessed? In the original Hebrew, it is an intensive exclamation in the plural. So we could say, oh, the blessednesses of the man. There's an exclamation there. Oh, the blessednesses of the man. Or to paraphrase it, oh, how very, very happy is the man. See, happiness is a fundamental human need. It definitely was at the time of the psalmists. It's fair to say that everyone strives after happiness and we do everything possible to achieve it. We orientate our lives around achieving happiness. Nobody wants to be miserable. Maybe Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Glum Eeyore. But nobody wants to be miserable. We don't wake up in the morning and say, what can I do today to be miserable? You know, it's, what can I do to be happy? You know, it's, it's what we strive after. But life teaches us that happiness is elusive. The world is more like a Shakespearean tragedy than a happily ever after movie. I don't know if any of you are Tom Cruise fans. <laughs> There's a beautiful scene. He acts in the movie Lost Samurai with Ken Watanabe and the last scene of that movie. They are charging towards the imperial Japanese army with swords drawn on their horses, hoping against hope that they will overcome the imperial army. And they get gunned down by these Gatling guns. And there's just no one left except Tom Cruise because he's the hero. You see, he gets shot, but he survives. All right. But now let's compare that to Mission Impossible. Tom Cruise. <laughs> I cannot believe how he never gets shot. You know, it's... Multiple machine guns, you know, tragic happenings, and he gets away unscathed. You know, which is more realistic to life? You know, is it the last samurai where everyone dies or Mission Impossible where no one dies? My guess is last samurai. <clears throat> you see, happily ever after is never ever going to happen. We easily become disillusioned with life. 
which leads to despair, hopelessness, and cynicism. And the attitude eventually becomes one of let's eat, drink, and be merry, or the classical bumper sticker we see, one life, live it. Now, there's nothing bravado about that. There's nothing commendable. In fact, it's very sad when you see that. People have got nothing more to live for than this day, because tomorrow may not come. Psalm 1 says that not only is happiness possible, but that it is sustainable and everlasting. See, we don't find happiness in and by ourselves because we look at it the wrong way. Our theory is wrong, and if you've got the wrong theory, you're going to definitely have wrong practice. It doesn't depend on circumstances or events in life. It must never be sought of as an end in itself. If you're doing that, you will never find happiness. So what does Jesus say about happiness? Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. See, it's not those who seek after happiness. It doesn't say for those who seek happiness you will be satisfied, but those who seek after righteousness. Happiness is something infinitely greater than what you see in the mirror every morning. What then is Psalm 1's prescription for happiness? Interestingly, it starts off with three negatives, things, three things not to do, followed in verse 2 by two things to do, and ends with a figure of speech to describe the happy man in verse 3. So let's look at the three things not to do in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So who are these wicked, these sinners, these scoffers? They are people who are morally loose, unstable. They have no consideration for God. They oppose God, in fact. They live life guided by their own desires, the emotions and impulses, influenced by popular opinion. Most commentators agree that verse this verse is more than just, just poetic parallelism. Now, in, in the Psalms, they used to use parallelism, where the psalmist would describe the same thing in multiple ways. But this is not poetic parallelism, but rather it is a description of the downward spiral into sin if it goes unchecked. What starts off as a casual influence from the wisdom and counsel of the wicked progresses into a pattern of bad habits, which is the standing, and eventually an established way of life where you are seated with the scoffers. So why the negatives? You know, why, why stop with negatives? You know, why not just get to the positive stuff? You know? We don't want to hear the negatives. You know, it's negative vibes. No one likes negative vibes. No one likes to be told what not to do. Our sinful natures don't like to be judged. We are easily offended. We like to think that we are okay and doing okay. Are you doing okay? Am I doing okay? The truth is, if it were not for the saving and sustaining grace of God, our default mode is always to fall into sin every time. Not sometimes, but every time. We ought to destruct, as it were, and bring unhappiness upon ourselves with no one to blame but ourselves. So this verse 1 this negative verse therefore acts as a reminder to us that we can never find happiness in and of ourselves. 
that our sinful natures are the root cause of unhappiness in the first place. And that's why we have the Ten Commandments as well. Thou shalt not. Because that's our bent to go towards those things. And also it is a warning that the process of retrogression in evil will happen if we are not advancing in God's word and way of life. You see, if we are listening to the counsel, if we are not listening to the counsel of God, we will be listening to the counsel of the wicked. There's no two ways about it, you, one or the other. We can never stand still as Christians. We can never rest in our laurels. If we do, Satan will subtly and insidiously change our ways without us even noticing it. He is the father of lies and deception. You know, what did he say to Eve in the garden in Genesis 3? Did God say? Put that doubt in her mind. Did God really speak? Or even now you might be thinking, is Psalm 1 really important to me? Surely it's describing someone else. How is God's church doing in this regard? How are you doing in this regard? Are you slowly losing interest in the word of God and finding yourself attracted more and more to the world and its offerings? Are you scoffing at the word of God? See, scoffing is far more than just blatant ridicule or rejection of God. It can be an indifference to the word of God. In Zephaniah chapter 1, Judah is warned against God's pending judgment because of the evils of idolatry, syncretism, and apostasy in verses 5 to 6. And rightly so, we can say, yes, they need to be judged for those evils. But then six verses later, God says, and I will punish the men, Zephaniah 1 verse 12, I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. How easy it is to become, how easy it is to become complacent and indifferent to the word of God. So what is the answer to this complacency, this spiraling ungodliness, this strained happiness that we experience? And here we get to verse 2, two things to do. But his delight, I love the buts in the Bible. It makes me think of Ephesians 2 verse 4. We were dead in our sins, but God, in God in his mercy, brought us to life. I mean, oh, I love the buts in the Bible. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The law of the Lord is the word of God, the full counsel of God, as opposed to the counsel of the wicked. It includes the Old and New Testaments, as well as its law, its promises, and the testimony from God and man, all included between those two covers. And so two things we do regarding the law of the Lord. The first one is we delight in it. The second one is we meditate on it. But let's look at delight in it. The original Hebrew word order for this verse reads, In the law of the Lord is his delight. So delighting in God's word is not something that comes spontaneously, as verse 1 has told us. Delight follows on or results from reading and understanding the word. I want to just read a verse here from Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. This would, would describe this as well. Jeremiah says, Your words were found, 
and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. So you can see the joy and the delight comes after eating the word. You don't have delight and then you want to read the word of God. You have to read the word of God to get the joy and delight. It's not going to happen the other way around. So delight to delight in God's word takes resolve and discipline and obedience. As John Piper puts it, we need to fight for joy in God's word. So the second thing we do is we meditate on it day and night. Now the Hebrew word for day and night means day and night. Okay, sorry. <laughs> You're not let off. <laughs> but it implies that it needs to be done regularly, daily and persistently. It is as important as eating and drinking. Think of it that way. It's far more important than social media. To meditate on it is to consider carefully what you're reading. To use your mind. We can thank the Father for the gift of the mind that we are able to understand and we can rationalize as we read the scriptures. What a beautiful gift to use your mind. We need to chew the cud. You know, a cow chews the cud. It swallows, it redigests, brings it back up a number of times, get every little bit of information and and, and joy out of that word as you, as you look at it. Cross-referencing, if you've got a Bible, if you have a, a study Bible, cross-reference, get a commentary. We need to mutter to ourselves as you read the word, almost praying to ourselves and praying to God as you read the word, doing everything possible to gain as much insight. So if we resolve to pick up the word in God and we read it regularly, and there has to be resolve there. So the resolve is important. We pick it up and we read it regularly and persistently meditating on it. This will produce delight. As Jeremiah fifteen sixteen said, and happiness and blessing will flow out of this. So you're probably asking, how can the word of God do all this? How can the word of God do all of this? Surely that's an exaggeration, a tall story. It's only a book. See, God's word is truth. And the word of God is far more than a book of instructions on how to live, giving us good advice. It's not a road map to be used whenever you get lost. You know, open a psalm, Lord, give me direction. It's the reliable, truthful, infallible, eternal word of the living God written to us and for us. It is our very life and it is not to be taken lightly. See, when we fight for delight and blessing in the word of God, it is because we have found delight and blessing in the God of the word. See, God is our king, speaks. He speaks to us. He reveals himself. He has spoken life into existence. Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He also sustains life by the power of his word. Acts 17, 28, In him we live and move and have our being, our every breath, our every step, our very existence, because of God's sustaining word into our lives. 
But most importantly, God is a personal God, and his desire is not only to rule us, but to connect with his subjects in fellowship. And so he has given us the written word to enable us to know who he is, what he has done, and what he's going to do. And he invites us into a personal communion with him. He said, the Bible is God's love letter to us. Have you thought of it that way? The Bible is God's love letter to us. The claim of the word of God upon us is absolute. We receive the words, we trust them, and we obey them as the words of God, our King, the creator and sustainer of all life. God is the author of all truth, and his words are the index of all reality. Everything, all reality, arrives, originates from God. So I'm going to look at God's worth, his truth, under two headings. His commands are true, and the second one is going to be his promises are true. So first of all, his commands are true. God's laws are given to us as a working definition of true humanity that teach us how to be truly human and happy. If you take away God's law and commands, the soul dries up, just like the body does if you don't take water and food. Your soul will dry up without the word of God. Here's a quote from J.I. Packer. As rational persons, we were made to bear God's moral image. That is, our souls were made to run on the practice of worship, law-keeping, truthfulness, honesty, discipline, self-control, and service to God and our fellows. If we abandon these practices, not only do we incur guilt before God, we are progressively destroying our own souls. Conscience atrophies, the sense of shame dries up. One's capacity for truthfulness, loyalty, and honesty is eaten away once character disintegrates. One not only becomes desperately miserable, one is steadily being dehumanized. Sorry, I just need some water here. Do you think this describes the world we live in? A dehumanized world? Do you think this describes the country we live in? With all its corruption, with all the murders, sexual offenses, people have been dehumanized. Do you think this describes the city we live in? It is. When we disregard God's commandments, we brutalize our souls. We absolutely mutilate, we brutalize our souls when we disregard God's commandments. And unhappiness is guaranteed. It's not it may happen, it is guaranteed. Jesus came to bring the truth to us, to reveal the Father to us. How many times in the book of John, and we're going to be getting to that soon, does he address the disciples with these words, I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth. And then in John 8, 31 to 32, we read, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, this is freedom from the bondage of sin and misery and unhappiness. True happiness can only be found by submitting to God's truth in obedience. Only then are we truly human. So not only are his commands true, but the next point, his promises are true. 
how anxious and unhappy we become when we forget the promises of God in the Scriptures. See, a low view of Scripture has robbed many of the blessing that can be found in meditation on his word and his promises. God is a covenant-keeping God, and he who, is, who he promised is faithful. When we read the full counsel of God in his word from Genesis to Revelation, it is so important that we meditate on it in the light of the gospel of Christ and God's plan of redemption and then we will find delight and be filled with awe. Right from Genesis chapter 3, where God said to Satan, or to the snake, he will crush your head and you will crush his heel. It talks about the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the, the offspring of the woman who was going to crush the head of Satan. Christ was promised right before the beginning of time. So we have to read the scriptures, Old and New Testament, in the light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us look at some of these promises. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified by faith. Not justified by works. We have been justified by faith, believing these promises, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, we have peace with God. We have peace with the God who we have turned our backs on, the God who we have rejected. We have peace with this God because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 31 to 32, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I mean, this is logic. If God gave up his own son to die for us, how can we doubt that he will give us all things? Pure logic. 1 John 3 verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Not only do we have peace with God, not only does God give us all things, but we are the children of God. You need to meditate on God's love. You may have a low view of God's holiness and righteousness and power, but you need to guard your hearts against a low view of God's love for you. The cross of Jesus can only be savored when you understand the love that put him there. God loves you more than you know, much, much more than you know. A well-known hymn writer, Charles Wesley, expresses it like this, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? When we meditate on the promises of God, we discover grace upon grace, not only for the present but for the future as well. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, No eye has seen or ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So what are the results of this meditation on God's promises? And when we talk about meditation, it's the chewing the cud, it's getting into the, 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 the meat of what these verses mean. 
understanding them, applying your mind, doing everything possible to understand it. What are the results of this meditation? Romans 15 verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. See, the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and He applies it to our hearts in faith as we believe. And the spin-off of that, the spin-off is joy and peace and hope. And joy and peace and hope are God's recipe for happiness. There's no other, hap- there's no other recipe. Another result is that we understand that our joy does not come from our obedience, our performance, but from Christ's obedience and his performance. And then very importantly, it is this joy in God that energizes obedience. Don't try and put obedience before joy. If you cannot find joy in the Bible, you will not be obedient. Find your joy in God and you will be obedient. This can never be overemphasized, the importance of meditating on God's word and his love for us. John Piper goes so far as to say, and he is right, not to pursue our joy every day in the word of God is to abandon the revealed will of God. It is sin. If you're wondering how you can apply this practically, then hopefully the example of George Miller can help. I think it was pronounced Muller. He was a 19th century German evangelist who set up a number of orphanages in the UK. And at the age of 36, middle-aged, 36, what should we call that, middle-aged, after many years of Christian service, he made an important observation. And in his words, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. See, prior to this, what he had done, he would get up in the mornings and he'd spend an hour praying. And then he would go, then he would, he would put a, write down the things he wanted to do in serving people and he would go out and do those things. And he says that despite all this, he was still largely unhappy. How can that be? You spent an hour praying and you've gone out and done good for people. He then discovered the joy of meditation on God's word every morning. And this deliberate, purposeful meditation on God's word soon led to prayers of praise, worship, thanksgiving, penitence, intercession, and ultimately a peaceful and happy state of heart, which he then took into his day. It was this happiness that made his ministry so much more effective in the years beyond that. And we can learn from George Muller. So what does the blessed man look like? Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Here the psalmist uses a, a beautiful figure of speech or a a visual picture, just in case you can't quite understand the, the words. Yeah, he's given you a, a picture now. You can understand that. You know what it's like when you, 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 you draw something rather than just hear it. it. It actually reinforces it. The man who has resolved to meditate daily on the full counsel of God, this is what he looks like. 
We note a number of things. He is transplanted. He's not He's, he's transplanted from a dry desert to a watered garden. It's a picture of salvation. See, before God, before the but, we were in this dry desert, and God has transplanted us from the dry desert to a watered garden. We have been brought from death to life. Secondly, he is nourished by the perennial streams of God's word and promises. Thirdly, he takes time to grow. Now, this is patience. You know, you might say, well, I've tried this. I've tried meditating. I did it for a month, but I, there, were, there were no results. Have you seen a tr tree grow much in a month? You might want to every day go and measure it, and maybe it has grown a bit, but you don't notice it. You see, that tree takes a long time to grow. Let's say it's an oak tree. It's going to take years to grow. But as we mature in the Word and establish a long-term relationship with God and His Word, we will grow as these trees. This tree produces fruit for others, not for himself. I think so much of theology these days is fruit for one's own benefit. It's not the fruits for others. We produce fruit for others. And God will use that fruit in His time, not our time, for His glory and that, that can be the fruit of the Spirit. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But it can, be, it can be fruit of service. Fruit of just loving people. This tree is evergreen, not swayed by worldly opinion. This tree is constant and stable, provides shelter for others. And this tree prospers in everything he prospers in everything as he understands the guiding principle this is not the prosperity gospel but he prospers in everything as he understands the guiding principle that all things work together for good to those who love God come what may he prospers because his treasure is in heaven not on earth and he is rich in Christ nothing can take that away from him what a beautiful picture of the blessed man. The contrasting visual of the wicked man is startling. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The wording is emphatic. It should read, not so the wicked, not so the wicked. We've had a beautiful description of the blessed man, not so the wicked. There is no peace there is no joy, hope, or lasting happiness for the wicked, those who reject God's word and authority over their lives. Outwardly, they may appear to be useful. Like chaff is to wheat. You know, the wheat has the, the, uh, the husk around it, which is the chaff. But when the wheat is winnowed, the farmer comes and he takes his winnowing fork and he throws that wheat in the air, the chaff blows away. It may appear to be part of the wheat, but it blows away as soon as the whirlwinds of every worldly thought, ideology, and persuasion come along. Have you ever watched a leaf in a courtyard where there's like a whirlwind, these dry leaves, and they're just all over the place? They can never keep still. Like one minute they're in this corner, then they're that corner. This is the, what we see as restless activity people that are never satisfied, always searching for the next best thing. 
like chaff, gets blown away. They are unstable, valueless, useless, and they will not stand when God judges. Verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. In case you're getting quite anxious, how am I going to do all this? This is a tall task. I said there's homework, there's application. How am I going to do this? The Lord knows the way of the righteous. The psalm ends with the assurance that God is all-knowing. And this knowledge is far more than just God knowing your situation or your predicament, but God's knowing is his active daily providence and care and love for his children. He knows those who are his and he watches over them. He guides them, disciplines them, and restores them. Psalm 23 verse 3, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. God will lead us into paths of righteousness because he knows you. We all need this restoring on a daily basis. We all need God to lead us in paths of righteousness. And my prayer this morning is that God, through his Spirit, would impress on your hearts the blessings to be found in a resolute seeking after him in the word. We may, we may pride ourselves in being a Bible-based church, and it is good, and we practice expository preaching, which is good through the books of the Bible, but are you seeking the scriptures for yourself? not just on Sundays and on Wednesdays. I believe there is a place for a renewed excitement regarding the Word of God where the taste of it would be like honey on our lips. We can't wait to get to it again. As we rediscover the precepts and promises of God, as we see God's amazing plan of redemption right through the Bible, and we understand God's love. Young folk here this morning, if you're battling to find your way amidst the deafening noise and pressures of the present culture and its conflicting ideologies, and hear the words of the psalmist, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Get into a good habit now. Don't wait till tomorrow or the next day. Get into the good habit now of meditating on God's word. You cannot lay a stronger foundation in your life than that. As I tell you, the trials will come. They will come. Beware of social media that it doesn't absorb your time. Take away your life. Older folk, it's never too late like George Muller. He was 36 when he changed to change your habits and practices? Has the word of God become nothing more than spiritual cliches? You know, you can say things like, the joy of the Lord is my strength, and you kind of believe it, and it's true, but you, do you really know the joy of the Lord? Have you discovered it for yourself in the word? Then if, that is the case with you, then resolve right now to rediscover the benefits of meditating on God's word. You will find peace and joy and assurance and hope for the future. So my prayer is that this year, 2023, will be for many a year of restoration, a year of growth, 
a year of evergreen leaves and fruitfulness. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Amen. Father, we just... We are just amazed this morning that you have revealed yourself in so many ways. And you have revealed yourself through your word and we are just so thankful, Father, that you have made yourself known through your word. And Father, I pray that we would be stirred up this morning to rediscover the truths in your word. We would rediscover your great love for us. We would rediscover your plan of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We would see your amazing works through these centuries, how you have cared for and provided for your people, your chosen ones. Father, we just lift up your name and we say thank you for your word. Thank you for this gift to us. And may we see you with our eyes. May we hear you with our ears. May we praise you with our lips, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.